0: How do you respond to the idea that, you know, it doesn't make sense or, you know, people don't understand? Like, what do you think about that and what would you say to other people who maybe like making things that other people don't think make sense?
1: I think um, (laughs) I love ideas. I like a story that's got some concrete, you know, structure, but also holds abstractions. Life is filled with abstractions and the way we make heads or tails of it is through intuition. And so, uh, people get used to a film that pretty much explains itself hundred percent and they kind of turn off that, you know, beautiful thing of intuition when they're looking at a film that has some abstractions. And some people, on the other hand, love these abstractions and it gives them room to dream. It, it, an abstraction, to me, is a thing that cinema can say and it's it's so beautiful uh, for me anyway to think about these pictures and sounds flowing along together in time in a sequence making a thing that can only really be said in cinema it's not words it's not just music it's a whole bunch of things coming together and making a thing that didn't exist before and and, and that's what i really love about it, about it thank you and then and then to answer your question a little further it's up to the people then you know to you know find their own you know interpretation it doesn't really matter what i think it's the it's all every screening no matter what even it, all the frames of the film are exactly the same but there's no two screenings that are exactly the same it's the viewer and the picture and sound and it makes a circle and it just goes like that and so um, you just Feel it and think it. That's kind of intuition, emotion, and thinking together. And come up, um, make, it, make it have a sense to you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. I hit record.
2: I hit record. <laughs> Sorry, I was... So for this recording, my cat Lem is in here. I hope it's not a problem. <laughs> um, he's very needy for attention.
0: Hi, really everybody, and welcome to... Me
2: at all. Anyway, motherfucker, I'm trying to introduce. (laughs) Go.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells. I, mm, you said go. (laughs) I was going. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie (laughs) podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm joined by Neve.
2: Hi, I'm Neve.
0: And we're also joined by Lem. The cat. cat. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't All know of that's staying in, by the way. Every single <laughs> okay. second of that. I was about to say, I don't
2: know if you're cutting any of this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Every single yeah. second of that is staying <laughs>
2: <laughs> in. Fir- our first guest on the podcast.
0: Uh, Lem, what did you think of Mulholland Drive?
2: Mm. She slept through <laughs> most of it.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh yeah, so this week we watched the two thousand and one David Lynch movie, Mulholland Drive, but before we get to that, Nia, you watched a movie.
2: Oh, I forgot that I was gonna talk about this. Yes. I so I did actually watch a movie um like almost a week ago, which was solo a Star Wars story. Um have you heard of this? <laughs> no, it's not so what's that? do you know Star Wars?
0: That's that remake of Hidden Fortress, right?
2: yeah, um so after they remade Hidden Fortress and called it Star Wars, they like did two other movies and they got really popular, um at least like in this niche audience um, and then you know from from there, eventually they started making more movies, so they started with like these prequels um that like no one's really heard about um, and then they started just doing like little one-off like these are other stories in the the you know story of star wars and the like world of star wars uh and then they also did like sequels to the to the original trilogy so um that's an explanation of star wars for the one potential listener who's never heard (laughs) of it before
0: (laughs) it's me i've never heard of star wars is it does anyone do does anyone do a podcast about star wars out there somewhere
2: no clue. I mean again it's fairly wonder... niche, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet if you went to exportod.io slash Star Wars you could find a podcast. It might even have me on it.
2: <laughs> um anyway, yeah, so the reason why I watch solo a Star Wars story is that um so I like have weird jumbled uh Religious beliefs that have their roots in, like, basically in high school, I became Taoist, and then more recently, I've been like, I'm kind of like disconnected from a lot of traditions and like holidays and things because, like, you know, like I would go to Tai Chi, like that was the closest I had to like going to a community thing, like a church, um, but then also just celebrating a bunch of Chinese holidays felt like weird and appropriative uh to me in this way of like there's so much more around a holiday than there is with you know just like your specific uh like the base faith there's like all these other traditions around it uh but what i what i ended up doing is i just like went to a lot of pagan stuff because uh a lot of it had similar themes that like exist in Taoist stuff around uh like passages of seasons and things like that all this is to say i celebrate yule very hard um i as much as possible try to take all 12 days off because you're just like not supposed to work during yule and i just really like not doing that and so last yule emily and i were like every night let's like watch a star wars thing um And we're just going to like go through all of the movies and we've seen them all in like release order before. And we were like, let's just do this thing where we watch like what is the chronological order, even though that's obviously not the way I would ever recommend anyone. Like when we show Star Wars to our toddler, we're not going to do chronological order within universe. But we decided to just do it this way as just like a fun way to try and watch Star Wars um, mm-hmm. And so we made it through the prequels And then we were like well There's this podcast that's launching That I'm going to listen to called A More Civilized Age um, This is the most I'm going to he- them here And We should watch The Clone Wars And so we started watching The Clone Wars like Before we went on And then we just got really really bored with The Clone Wars um, It just was not our vibe <laughs> um, And so we just like stopped and we decided recently, like, let's just pick it up. Let's forget about the Clone Wars. Let's like go on to the next movie. And the next movie was Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, and this is a fairly uh, derided movie. I feel like within <laughs> the fandom, and it is not a good movie. But no. Han Solo is a cat boy. Specifically, if you're using the like taxonomy of catboys, I think Han Solo is primarily a Cheshire catboy, uh, with like a little bit of Tall catboy. Um, like if you're like plotting it out, and <laughs> <laughs> like I I love Han Solo a lot. Um, Han Solo is the first crush that I had on a male character <laughs> growing up.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
2: I also just I In the I 70s. like. Yeah, in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, I, like, I don't know what you want from me. I had fun because it was Han Solo and he's a cowboy. Also, Lando Calrissian, like, having Donald Glover playing Lando, incredible. Incredible. Um, Truly, like, completely steals the movie. Uh, is the best part of the movie by far Um, is also not even a a question with like not a good script not a good like like the script that he's given is not an interesting thing for Lando the character really no (laughs) it's not any sort of actual interesting exploration that would like like that's the whole thing with this movie none of it really explores any of these characters in any interesting way Um, so much of it is almost like we're about to talk about something where this like is very different. I I think part of the reason why I like on one hand I see why so many people are upset at Star Wars or Solo a Star Wars story and then why I can like watch it and still kind of have a goofy fun time even though I think it's a really bad movie is that I don't really care about lore. I don't care about like like I actually get frustrated sometimes when I'm like reading a book or I'm like watching a a movie series or like a show or something that gets like really invested in setting up like, here are all these mysteries and here's like, and, and knowing that there's an answer and that they are going to provide that answer. And that that is like this constantly unfolding lore where there's like a big like wiki where you can see everything. And then like, Oh, here's what that is. And here's how it relates. It's just like, not how I engage with media in any Mm -hmm. like significant way. In this way that, like, sometimes I I get frustrated with that in media when I feel like media is, like, really, really, really tailoring itself towards that experience and towards being, like, oh, if you're, like, the real fan who's, like, following along on the wiki, you're going to get everything out of it. Because I kind of like incoherence and just, like, weird abstract stuff. And I love when things are just, like, evocative and I never really know what what it really means. Like, you just, like they will call something something or they'll refer to something that happened in the past and there's no answer for it. Maybe there is a Mm canon answer for the people who created it, but it's like never actually revealed to you. And it's just always evocative. And that's to me, the like best part of star Wars is where like the original trilogy is so fucking good to me because it suggests such a world beyond the limits of the screen. And yeah, this is, this is the (laughs) magic
0: of star Wars in 1977 is that you can watch that movie and you can remember they didn't know where any of this was going. They didn't know they yeah. were going to get a sequel. No one made sequels to movies. I they mean, mentioned like mentioned
2: the Clone Wars, and it's just like, okay, and like you might wonder, like, what is that? But also, like, it was made at a time where no one was expecting them to ever explain what are the Clone Wars. It was just an right. evocative thing, and especially for Star Wars, I think part of like why I loved it so much as a kid is that that allowed me to imagine myself within this world that had, like, infinite possibilities because it suggested things but never, like, explained them. And so you Mm -hmm. could kind of just create any story that you wanted within the world of Star Wars, like, using the, like, base pieces that existed. But you could just make up entire planets, which, I mean, you still kind of can do, but I feel like the more it's grown, like, the more I have lost that and the the more I have, like, I went from Star Wars is the most important thing in my life to, like... Oh yeah, this is a fun movie. Like, there. This is like a a fun. Like, what I enjoyed about Solo is that there's just action scenes where like Han Solo is like a doofus, and I feel mm-hmm. like we don't get that very often in a lot of movies these days. And I think some of it is like who Han Solo is a, is as a character allowed them, and also the the actor. I'd think like wasn't the kind of big name. I don't even remember his name who plays Han Solo in this, but like, wasn't really the kind of big name where he's going to be like all hung up on like, I have to look cool. And so often Han Solo does not look cool in this movie in a way that I really enjoy. He's just a doofus. Mm -hmm. uh, He's a cat boy. And I love him because he's a fucking cat boy. Um, And he's just like (laughs) being dumb and I love him. Um, And so I can enjoy it for that. Even as I still roll my eyes at the like way that like the, one of the biggest weaknesses for me in the movie is just how much it is often trying to explain things about Han Solo, the character and provide like the wiki answer for like, Oh, this is how Han Solo got his name. Um, and it's just like, I don't care about any of this. And this is not like making the world richer for me. It's actually like, um, Mm -hmm. collapsing that possibility space. Um, and so that's like where I get frustrated with it.
0: The the thing about the Disney Star Wars stuff for me is that they got rid of the EU, which was like this weird place of infinite possibility where you knew most of it sucked and also most of it didn't matter. And so you could kind of like play around with stuff. And anytime you read a new book, like maybe this author is just going to totally throw out what the other guy said. And, you know, all this sort of stuff that I really like. Uh, and that we're talking about on the war in our stars um and what you replaced all of that with disney throws all that out and what they replaced it with is the eu but with a continuity editor <laughs> because yeah they're it's just, just not reusing the that it needed <laughs> <laughs> they're reusing all the ideas from the eu like Once a week, like somebody like IO9 or Kotaku or Polygon runs an article about, like, oh, you know, this detail is confirmed in the EU. And actually, it's just like, you know, this book from 2004. They just totally ripped that detail out from a book from 2004. And so it's just like they're bringing back all the EU ideas. It's just that there are now corporate overlords who get to delineate, like, what is possible within the story. And it's not fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like, the biggest Um, glimpse of, like, the most fun moment for me is just when, like, fucking Darth Maul is back. Like, I guess, spoiler solo. But you're just like, what the fuck? Like, Darth Maul is here? He, like, is not dead. Um, Who knows if he still has, like, his regular legs. But, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that suggested something. And part of it was exciting and then part of it was also like seeing it and being like, I'm kind of glad that this bombed so much because I like this just being a weird thing where Darth Maul is back and then we're not going to get the movie. That's going to like collapse the like weird possibilities of that.
0: (laughs) Well, Um, can I tell you something? I'm
2: like, I guess maybe we're getting it. Are we getting it? (laughs) No, this is a Mandalorian thing.
0: Like six months after, um, Darth Maul showed up in Solo, A Star Wars Story. Darth Maul showed up in the uh, Rebels TV show um, and gets, like, actually mega killed by Obi-Wan again. Um, like, Obi-Wan cuts him in half the other direction this time. So, like, I I just don't know. I, Darth Maul seems really for real dead now. And it's really funny that, like, uh you know a couple months after disney introduces darth maul's fucking back they killed him (laughs) off again and like there's only like a year of time in between when he shows up in solo and when he shows up in um rebels so like there's some stuff he can get up to but not that much you know
2: (laughs) that is that is funny um i've not watched any of the rebels stuff but that's great
0: (laughs) the disney loves this is rise up skywalker is a movie about this disney loves to introduce to you new possibility spaces for star wars and then immediately foreclosing them
2: (laughs) yeah um yeah Um, and it's i mean so the other thing here is i watched it when i was in theaters because um like emily and i just have a, a weird fondness and attachment to a lot of star wars because like one of our first dates was going to see revenge of the sith um both of our families were like big star wars families as well as star trek families <clears throat> and so it was just like a thing that we had and and we've often watched together um and so yeah but yeah we like went and saw it in theaters because we were just excited and it was stupid but we still had fun because he's hot um both Han Solo and Lando Calrissian in this movie are really fucking hot. Um, (laughs) And then I basically forgot most of it. And then I was watching it and I was like, oh, I'm going to be talking about this on ornate stairwells. I'm fairly certain there are some ornate stairwells when they're going into the like weird flying tower thing um, where the like mob boss or whatever is. And no, there's like literally never a fucking stairwell at all in the movie not a single fucking stairwell so it's an f it's an i put it in the the spreadsheet already it's a fucking f um no good stairwell in this movie
0: shaking my head um the other (laughs) thing the and i don't want to spend too long on solo but we're only 15 minutes in it's gonna be fine um the other thing that so for the first how long is this movie It's just over two hours. It's two hours and change. For the first 90 minutes or so, I more or less agreed with you that it's like like a fun, fun little action movie. Han Solo's a doofus. Yeah, whatever. I had a good time. And then around that time, they're like leaving the mines or whatever, the prison, whatever it is that they're doing. And I was like, oh, the movie's ending. Cool. Um... We're going to get, like, a quick little denouement on the Falcon or something, and then we're going to go home, and there will be another adventure next week, and whatever. Uh, And then the movie is like, no, 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 that wasn't an ending. We're going to do the Kessel Run. And they do the Kessel Run, and you're like, okay, well, I guess you had to do that. Um, And now the movie's ending. And then they get to that beach and have... uh, Sorry for spoiling Solo, I guess, uh, (laughs) listeners. Um... (laughs) They get to this beach and they have a fight over the loot and you're like, okay, movie's kind of dragging at this point, but now it's over. And then they go to an uh, office and they have another fight over the loot. And you're like, man, how many times can this movie fucking end? And it ends. And then they're like, oh, by the way, Darth Maul is here. And I was back in for like five (laughs) minutes as Darth Maul was on screen. But come on, the movie ended so many times. Could we get out of here?
2: <laughs> yeah um, so yeah no. it's it's a movie i I have fun it's also dumb, and I see why it's a lot of star dumb. wars fans um hate it, and i like am just free I became free of Star Wars a long time ago in a way where I can just like hold it at arm's length um and always have what it meant to me and then just be like. I love this stupid cat boy. (laughs) Show me more of this (laughs) cat boy. (laughs) Let me clap at the screen. Um, (laughs) Han Solo is a cat boy. Um, Shall we talk about the main movie that we watched? Or do you have... You said that you didn't really watch anything that you want to talk
0: about. Um, I think I watched... The the only movie I watched was uh, Godzilla, which is a movie I podcasted about. Mm -hmm. Oh, I did... I did... Um because this is just not how Nora and I watch movies and we watch movies together. Um uh, I did want to talk to you a little bit about um aesthetics in um Godzilla 1954 um yeah. and specifically the stairwell in there. Oh yeah. Um
2: Are, I added it to the spreadsheet already. Right. Okay.
0: I I put I gave it a B, I think. Um stairwell itself is all right. Basically so I assume you know the plot of Godzilla, nineteen fifty four. Um, she meets up with the, the the scientist guy with the eye patch, and he doesn't want to tell her about uh, that he's developing the oxygen destroyer. And they talk about it, and he doesn't want to do it. And then um, she agree or he agrees, to show her the oxygen destroyer. And they walk down this kind of like spooky staircase, and it's really good because like it's spooky and it's very narrow. Like the movie is shot in, I think like four, three or slightly wider than four, three, but basically the entire screen is black except the stairwell. And then he opens the door and you're in the set from Frankenstein <laughs> and it's just beakers and test tubes and like, you know, Tesla coils and all these sorts of bullshit. Um, that really amused me. It's not like an amazing stairwell scene, but the fact that the stairwell opens into the set from Frankenstein, really good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, that I need to rewatch. I, I listened to the your podcast already because i just like immediately listen to all of the podcasts immediately um mm-hmm. but i need to rewatch the original godzilla it's been a while since i've watched it and i just remember like some of the the shots just being incredible um
0: they really like honda really sing- swings for the fences in that movie in a way that like I don't think he ever does again because I think after this movie he's like, oh, I'm gonna make cheap entertainments, and I think he's like an all time great at making cheap entertainment movies. But I think he really like goes for it with this first one. Yeah, you know,
2: the impression I, having seen a lot of Godzilla, the impression I sometimes have with the first one is just that like they had this idea of like, okay, how do we like do this monster? And so they did the costume and then. You know they, they did the whole tokusatsu thing um but they like really poured a lot into making it like as convincing as they possibly could and then I think it just took especially for like the studio system in Japan at the time it seems like it took a while compared to yes like what it would normally take for shooting and I think after that they're just like okay we have to like we're we're gonna keep doing this but we just have to like not care as much about getting it perfect anymore. <laughs> um yeah just like have the guy in the suit and it's fine it's fine just do the little
0: (laughs) wikipedia factoid i cited on the podcast was that um principal photography took 50 days um and sfx photography took uh 70 days um so that's four months of just photography that's not even putting it together um that is just unconscionable in the studio system that Japan had in the 1950s. Yeah.
2: Like, for <laughs> you cannot spend four
0: months making one movie.
2: <laughs> for comparison, like the Battles Without movies have a lot of fucking shots because those are like really rapidly edited, um, and they were able to produce five of them in less than two years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, yeah, just the the demands of like how are you going to produce the and obviously battles with that was was far later but still like the studio system wanted to churn out movies i think a bit faster than that
0: <laughs> yeah so. i mean also like i think through the Showa era i would have to check this but i think through the Showa era they start putting out like one or two of these movies every year especially when you start factoring in that Honda was making other non-godzilla movies like yeah at least two of these every year for you know 20 years um so good
2: good fucking uh good fucking movie good fucking podcast people should pay $5 and go listen to it. Yeah,
0: if you want to hear um Godzilla's Not Dead, a podcast I do with Nora, my wife, um about Godzilla, uh $5 a month on the Patreon. I really I really think it's worth it. I think if you like Export, it is a it is just Export, but we have the sort of focus of let's talk about this shit and let's like let ourselves Wikipedia dive but about a specific subject, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um. So Anyway, should we talk about Mulholland Drive?
2: Yeah, let's talk about Mulholland Drive. This movie is fucking great.
0: This movie's fucking great. It's just one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Um It's also so. just
2: Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks is fucking yeah. great. So
0: <laughs> have you I'm going to ask a question I know the answer to. Have you seen this movie before?
2: I have um i saw what did you think of it about like two hours ago (laughs) um (laughs) i have seen it previously i so i think i saw it at a time where i had watched some twin peaks but i hadn't like really sat down and watched twin peaks and i think also i didn't like have a sense of like lynch in my head yet when i first watched this movie Um, because, so my Lynch trajectory is the first thing I watched was Blue Velvet, um, which I still love a lot. I think to Mm -hmm. some degree there's like a, you see that first and like Lynch is very preoccupied with like repeating themes and, um, like motifs and things. And so I could see like doing a thing where you like just sat down and watched all David Lynch movies back to back would like kind of get tedious at a certain point because I think there is a lot of like repetition throughout um, and it's kind of ex- more exciting I think to like jump around. Mm-hmm. But basically I watched um, Blue Velvet and then I think I started watching Twin Peaks and watched Mulholland Drive and then fell off of Twin Peaks. I think around the time where like the point where most people fall off and then it wasn't until what did you just send
0: me? <laughs> I just sent you a dumb tweet. That's all. Don't Um, worry about it. It has nothing to do with the podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) this is a very dumb tweet. Um, (laughs) uh, What was I even saying? Oh, so I watched Blue Velvet. I started watching Twin Peaks. I watched Mulholland Drive. So, like, Mulholland Drive is like my second lynch film that i ever watched um and then i watched some other ones i have not watched all lynch movies but i've watched a fair number at this point um and then yeah i fell off of twin peaks around the point where a lot of people do and then there was a point where i was like i really want to watch all of the show and so i actually watched through all of it watched firewalk with me um and then i've watched through twin peaks a second time with my wife emily um which I thought she was having a fun time. She suggested tonight that uh, she was doing it mostly because she loves me. So (laughs) (laughs) I think she was legitimately having a fun time for like most of the parts where people enjoy Twin Peaks. Um, And there's just definitely a part where people get bored. Uh, It happens. Um, And she did not like Firewalk with me. It was too terrifying. Um, (laughs) Which is is fair. It is an unpleasant. Yeah. It's an unpleasant film to watch.
0: Um, um. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna go through a weird amount of like my own life talking about this movie real quick. So, tw- uh, when did Inglorious Bastards come out? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I uh, promise that this matters for the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> two thousand nine. So, whenever Inglorious like Bastards. i going
2: to say the age that you were when you watched Inglorious Bastards, and it's just going to make I would, feel very 13, old. I would have been
0: 13. <sighs> I would have been 13 when Inglorious Bastards came out. I could drink. So, when Inglorious Bastards came out, I remember my parents talking about it a lot, and they were like, oh, well, because my dad and stepmom were very big um, Quentin Tarantino people still are um, and so they showed me Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and like Pulp Fiction is like the movie that got me into movies basically um, I'm sorry and, <laughs> yeah it's not a movie I like anymore I still like Reservoir Dogs I don't really care for Pulp Fiction anymore anyway um, so then from there, I was just watching movies that my parent, that my dad and stepmom liked, basically, and uh, somehow this resulted in like thirteen or fourteen year old me seeing um, Blue Velvet and head in like pretty quick succession, <laughs> um, which is like was a lot for me to process as a fourteen year old. Um, I just yeah. I don't think I was ready to see those movies, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> I did, and (laughs) here I am now. Um,
2: I mean, I I watched The Shining when I was five, so, you know, I was the youngest of five kids. Um, I just watched a lot of stuff that I, you know, most adults would not be showing a five-year-old or a six-year-old or whatever age I was when I was seeing it. Um, But it's very hard to be like, most of us are going to watch this movie and you can't. Mm -hmm. So I just got to watch a lot of stuff, and I turned out fine.
0: I feel like most people who are, like, really into movies on some level are like, yeah, I saw that movie when I was way too young and impressionable, and it just kind of, (laughs) like, fucked me up a little bit, you know? Um, I feel like everybody has this story somewhere. Um, Yeah. So I remember sometime after that not like not like a long time but sometime after that I was like I want to watch more David Lynch movies uh because Blue Velvet is one of my favorite movies still is now in 2021 I love Blue Velvet um I've seen it like five or six times I think sometime maybe when I was 18 I watched Mulholland Drive um and fucking hated it (laughs) I hated this movie and then I spent like a week where I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I watched it again like a week after. And I was like, oh, this movie is amazing. I just didn't, I wasn't ready for it. Cause I think, yeah, I think having only seen Blue Velvet a couple times and Eraserhead, Head, I just was not ready for the movie that. Mulholland Drive is because it is just very much a movie that exists in the aftermath of Twin Peaks it is in so many ways just more Twin Peaks like there's the and I don't know if this is true the urban legend about this starting as a pilot for a Twin Peaks spinoff and kind of becoming its own project and uh I don't know if that's true but like a lot of the aesthetic trappings of Twin Peaks are all just here in full force and if you just don't know about Twin Peaks that just makes sense that you would hate this movie if you're 18 years old you know um uh but yeah that's kind of that's kind of like my life with this movie is like I I think the last time I saw it would have been before I actually 2017 when the return aired and I watched all of Twin Peaks and I watched Firewalk with me and I watched the return and I would have watched Mulholland probably a year or two before that I haven't watched it since so it's been probably five years but it's still a movie I think about a lot and I still fucking love it and we watched it tonight and I still fucking love it so
2: yeah um I think like in some ways I think I I was more ready for it when I watched it even though I hadn't gone through Twin Peaks and I think this is I think this is the first time I've watched it since seeing all of Twin Peaks um and definitely Mm -hmm. like having seen twin like this is a movie that i think is like meta textually commenting on the fact that you as the audience has like have probably seen twin peaks you have expectations of david lynch from seeing twin peaks and we are going to like specifically evoke twin peaks in certain ways that like i Mm -hmm. think also get folded into the way that the like film is constructing this like weird dual space um, mm-hmm. It's part of what I really love about it. And I like watching this time, I was like, wow, this movie is even better than I remember. Um, but I think it was also somewhat, I was prepared for it at the time because when I started watching David Lynch, I had already been watching a lot of art cinema. Um, and so I think I was more prepared for like the weird unrealities that exist in this movie. Um, and just like the way that it's constructed. Like I was already at the point when I first watched this movie watching movies being like this is an aesthetic experience which i think is just a mindset that like helps you tremendously watching this movie (laughs) yeah like this is a this movie is images following each other in sequence um (laughs) and (laughs) like those images are constructing filmic meanings and are like creating filmic connections that are independent of like a pure objective reality and an attempt to like present some sort of pure objective temporal reality. Um And I and think like, this <laughs> is the
0: movie that kind of like put me on the path toward thinking in this way, but I was not on this path before that. Like I, I, I might've, I definitely had seen some abstract movies like this before and Uh, I don't, I don't think this movie is solely responsible, but like, this is definitely when I think about like, how I watched movies has changed over the years. Like, this is a huge part of it. Like, this is like, a lot of things come together in this movie for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I know I, so I got into Kurosawa very early on in my like, being into film. Um, And... I actually don't remember if I watched Seven Samurai or Rashomon first. I think it was Rashomon though. Um, And I feel like Rashomon was this thing of like, I watched it and one Rashomon's a very aesthetic film. Um, Like it's just like very beautiful to look at. And I think Mm -hmm. it is also constructing, like it, it is providing, it provided for like a lot of, film history and for like a lot of film theory one of the first big examples of the way that film can actually like break from reality and like specifically depict like differing realities or like the ways that things conflict within like people's perception of reality um like that's the whole thing with Rashomon and so Mm -hmm. I think seeing that very very early on in terms of like oh I want to watch a bunch of movies like really helped prepare me for being open to films as not, like, let let us depict, like, some linear reality, but, like, oh, how are, how are, like, narratives and images and everything able to play together to, like, present various, like, contradictions, which is then also colliding with, like, I was getting very big into magical realism at the time, which I feel like is a thing we'll probably talk about with this film as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and magical realism is also something that I think is, like, very... um. Like one of the main frameworks I use to think about magical realism is actually this, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. I should have looked this up before we started recording, but the name of the the book is The Fantastic, um, and it's basically setting up this like uh, framework for understanding, especially magical realist texts, but I think also applies kind of like a little bit more broadly than magical realism, but that it specifically talks about like the fantastic is this thing that is the tension between like not necessarily like the real and the unreal in the sense of like surrealism or like that, but it is in fact like two competing realities and that you as the like reader or the viewer or whatever may eventually land on a decision about this is the true reality that I'm going to assume is like the, the reality and this other part is the unreality or is the magical element or is the like surreal element. And yet, what is actually like the point of the text is that moment of hesitation where you do not know what is real and what is unreal. And that Mm -hmm. in that moment, both of those are real and you have to like confront the competing realities and then either be content with like existing with the tension of like reality is actually not objective and will like forever be um, in this flux state. Or you have to like, as the audience member collapse it into what is your reading of like what is real um and that that is an act that is like these texts being interested in this is actually specifically interested in the way that like our conception of reality that we have currently in our modern day is a constructed conception that is based on like empirical science Um, And I'm putting like somewhat scare scare Mm -hmm. quotes around, like light scare quotes around this. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is specifically like a Western construction. And that is a Western construction that is like often put on... Uh, has been often put on like colonized people and to say that like your reality that you have is in fact not the true reality we're going to like enlighten you with like rational western scientific thought and this is the true reality but that all of these are actually constructed realities and like we are always engaged in this part where we are collapsing our understanding of reality into a framework but that framework is always like separate from reality even if we may still believe certain frameworks are more real or are getting closer to reality um but then like that tension and artwork that is dealing with that tension is calling into question like is scientific empiric like this is the sense of reality is that actually true reality is that actually like and is asserting that as like the subjective reality that should not be questioned is that actually like true or is that something that we need to like push against um mm-hmm. as we're like continuing to work on understanding ourselves in the world and also like not destroying cultures <laughs> is the other element so right i've right. gone on a tangent about magical realism but this is like my big this is like my core feelings about magical realism and what magical realism <laughs> no, is doing no. and why why it springs up so much in like colonized and like post-colonial nations as well as i think a lot of marginalized spaces like i think there's like a form of queer magical realism that also deals with like asserting other forms of reality or like having the tension between like what is straight reality and what's queer reality um Mm -hmm. which kind of gestures to this is a weird film because i think it is uh one very gay and at the other hand is like playing with the tensions of like straight male fantasies of queerness (laughs) Um, yes, and the tension between that is more interesting than like doing one reading or the other to me. So yeah. I'll let you speak. I'm I'm rambling. <laughs>
0: no, you're good. Um, I think here it's probably going to be good to like move into um a summary a little bit of the movie. It's going <laughs> oh, yeah, to be hard to summarize. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, I think I I think actually when I was while we were watching the movie, I was thinking about in my head like how do I want to structure this discussion? And I kind of wanted to lead in with all of that fork. because I knew that you and I were going to bring it up because literally after we stopped recording last week, we had this conversation off air. (laughs) Um, So I knew that we were going to get here pretty quick. Um, Before we do the synopsis, the only thing that I wanted to add to what you were saying just now was just that like, um, for me, like, I did not I have not always in my like life watching his movies thought of uh Lynch as like a guy who works with magical realism. I have thought of him a lot as a person who works in surrealism because I think that is a um very popular conception of his movies. I think like that is how generally people talk about his movies is as surrealism. Yeah. Um and like When you say magical realism, to me, like, I always think about um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and 100 Years of Solitude. And, like, that is a book that is very explicitly, I think, about what you were just saying about, like, there is a colonial reality and there is a, like, non—like, there is a—there is reality for— colonized people and there is a reality for colonizers and these two things are at odds with each other a lot and so like that for a long time framed kind of the only way i would think about magical realism and i think like that is a that is how gabriel garcia marquez thinks about uh magical realism and i think like other artists in other places and other times can approach the same sort of genre and same sort of like aesthetic trappings in very different ways for very different reasons yeah um and i I, want to like
2: interject because yeah i i often object i think there is a tendency in a lot of like critical spaces that i see to over apply magical realism um the the worst over application that i've ever s- seen is somebody who said that harry potter is magical realism and like oh, <laughs> it's fucking, fucking not
0: <laughs> no it's fuck fucking off not. fuck um, off but it's magic it's fantasy
2: yeah but, but i think there is often this like um understanding of magical realism that does not get to this heart that i'm talking about of like the tensions between realities and that it is like oh it is reality but with like magic overlaid in some way um and i think that is like a misunderstanding of what it's truly about which is rather about like asserting a quote-unquote magical view of the world as also a possible reality and then forcing you as the the viewer to have to like debate between the realities um and always be conscious like i think the best magical realist works when you choose the empirical reality and you say that this other part is magic you should be like aware that what you are doing is like a destructive act to some degree to like say Mm -hmm. that this like non-empirical part of the story um that is like more dreamlike or is like more bizarre or is like not following logic as we know it and has this like more magical logic that that is unreal that when you are doing that like collapsing of the possibilities um and of like the reality and unreality you are you are like actually destroying something meaningful um and those are like for me the best works and like (laughs) <laughs> Something like Harry Potter, again, the worst example I've seen of this, but, like, obviously isn't engaged in this at all. Um, but there are a lot yeah. of works that I've seen described as magical realist that are also not doing that. Like, there's this whole, like, Twitter bot that was popular for a while that was, like, magical realism bot. And some many of the tweets are really bad because it wasn't this. Like, it, <laughs> it wasn't. It was <laughs> just, like, weird stuff happens. And it's like, this is more surrealism to me. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: And... Yeah, so partially I wanted to, like, interject there because I I often have this tension between, like, I do think that, like, I have respect for magical realism as this tradition that, like, specifically came up out of, especially, you know, Central and South America, but, like, from these colonized nations. Um, And so when I'm trying to apply it outside of that space, I am often, like... The The core that I've often found is like, is this work still engaging with systems of power and oppression and how those things like tie into the construction of what is quote unquote real? Um, mm-hmm. And if it's not like really engaged with like how what we define as real is part of an oppressive system, um, I don't think it's really magical realist but I think there can be stuff that's like outside of a directly, like this is a post-colonial author or whatever, that's still engaging with that and doing interesting things. Um, and David Lynch is one of those things that like a lot of his work is like very on the line to me, but that I think I would describe as magical realists, but that I like have internal debates with myself every time I do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think he's still like engaged in um, people. It, this is probably coming out at the same time as the Ava episode where we discuss the last six episodes of Ava. I um, thing that Brad talks <laughs> about on there is like loving David Lynch and loving straight men who are doing works about like clearly gendered trauma and David Lynch being a straight man seemingly who does lots mm-hmm. of works about clearly gendered trauma. Yes. Um, yes. And I, I think a lot of the d- gender trauma that comes up in David Lynch's work is where I like most see this like engagement with oppressive systems. Um, right. And also how and it I factors know, into like a lot of classism in David yeah. Lynch's works as well. So, um,
0: <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just fully ranting. Okay. No, you're good. You're good. I want to. I want to pull us back because I wanted to. I wanted to start our conversation there because I think. I think that conversation is a better place to start with Mulholland Drive than a strict, like, synopsis of the sort of facts of the movie. But now that we've talked about all that, I kind of want to, like, explain what happens in this movie as best I can. And uh, I'm probably going to hand wave past some things. Um, and um, w- there are a lot of characters I think it in will- this movie. <laughs> There are a lot of characters in this movie, and I think if you have not one, if you have not seen this film, this is going to be a really hard discussion to follow, and I'm sorry. Go watch but it. Um... Go watch it. It's go, wa- go watch it. It's a long one, but it's one of the best movies ever made, so you'll have a good time, I think. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> I yeah, I'm going to do my best to summarize like the events of the f- film as they happen in the roughly the order they happen, but it'll become clear that like that is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> uh beautiful blonde young woman named Betty arrives in Hollywood. Um and, like bright-eyed and, you know, looking up at all the all the lights. And stuff. Um, and I've already skipped past two important things. Let me take another <laughs> run at this. <laughs> <laughs> that is not how the movie starts. The movie starts with um a really bad green scene sequence of people dancing. Um and Angelo Battlementi uh just going fucking nuts on whatever it is he does. Um
2: David Lynch loves his very, very obvious digital special effects. I mean, this is just like the he most really extreme.
0: <laughs> we then get, um, and this is going to matter for like how we interpret what happens in this movie. You get a very obvious shot of like the camera zooming in on like pillows and blankets and a bed, as if you were, you know, POV. I'm gonna lay down to go to sleep. <laughs> Yeah. Then you get the title sequence, you know, the Mulholland Drive and there's a limo driving in the dark of Hollywood and you see the names of the actors and um you're introduced to a dark-haired woman um who for the first portion of the movie is going to go by the name Rita. Um and Rita is, like uh is in this limo The limo drivers attempt to assassinate her, but things go horribly wrong as, like, a car crashes into them. She runs away. She sneaks into an apartment um, that people are leaving out of and goes to sleep. Now we are introduced to Betty. She's, you know, bright-eyed, blah, blah, blah. I want to
2: interject with a scene, because I think it is significant as well, where I think in the midst of Betty, like... Mm going and and or not Betty uh, Rita going and like running or maybe it's slightly after I don't remember exactly when there's the whole scene at at Winkie's.
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> when does yes. that
2: happen yeah
0: I I think I think what happens is that she lays down in their front lawn uh, we go do the Winky scene and then we come back to her and she goes into their apartment I think yeah. is how that happens. And so the um, winky
2: scene is like a man telling another man about a nightmare he had mm-hmm. at the diner where he encountered a horrific, like, man, basically, um, who mm-hmm. is, like, described as being, like, this terror. It, I mean, it's Bob from Twin Peaks, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but in a different form here. But, um, you know, it's definitely played it really to is some just degree Bob. with, like, you know, a unhoused person. But also, like very, 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 like face is just like completely covered in like makeup to make it just as like dirty as possible. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that I think, it, and also, no, it's not. While they're there, that we meet the the waitress. The waitress is later because I the waitress is later. How gay it is. <laughs> so we'll get right. that. We'll Back get there. to you.
0: <laughs> so, Betty. Uh, arrives in Hollywood with her grandparents in tow her grandparents are so excited for their little girl um, and Betty's aunt Roth I think um, is going out of town for a few months and has this really nice apartment in Hollywood and so she's gonna let Betty stay in the apartment Uh, and Betty's going to do some auditions and she's going to try and, you know, get discovered and make it big in Hollywood. Um, she's, she meets her landlord Coco, who is kind of a like motherly figure and seems like it's going well. She goes into her apartment. She's, you know, having a great time and she sees like a purse on the floor of her bedroom. And she's like, what's that? And then she goes to the bathroom and Rita is naked in the shower. Um, there's a misunderstanding, um, because, uh, basically Betty is like, oh my gosh, my aunt must have had another guest using the apartment, um, and not told me, come to find out, no, um, you know, Rita has just lost her memories and kind of wandered in here, and Betty and Rita, er, Betty kind of presses Rita into, let's do you know, let's go like find your memories and like figure out who you are and what this car accident you're talking about was. And you know, it's gonna be just like the movies. We're gonna, yeah. you know, be in the plot of a movie, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be like a dream, like a movie.
2: Um. <laughs> I want to, I want to do another interjection, which was, please, when Betty is leaving the airport, we get these scenes of this very, very, um, like exaggeratedly acting happy old mm-hmm. couple.
0: Which <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: so I just want to put here, because it'll it will come up later.
0: It'll come up later. <laughs> come up later. Um, we're getting into the part of the movie where I'm going to have to kind of hand wave some stuff, because yeah. this is all very, like, disjointed think- scenes, and they all matter, but I can't remember what order any of them happen in. Yeah, um, I
2: think the one key one that happens early on too that i want to like um mention is so there's ad adam kesher or like kessler yes i forget his last name um is this director who is casting for a film and these like Mm -hmm. mobsters i guess like it's kind of unclear exactly who they are but it seems like they're like basically taking over his film um i get some like you know, this is like the mob or the equivalent in Japan is like Yakuza has a big hand in a lot of films. But like, I get mm-hmm. that that sense here. Um, it definitely is like, both of them are like the Castiglianis or something. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them one is played, is played by, by the dad
0: from <laughs> Clueless and one is played by Angelo Badalamenti himself. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Um, but basically they, they commandeer the film and they're like, everything else you can do the way that you want, but you have to higher like we require that when you see this actress camilla rhodes you say like that's the girl she's the Mm -hmm. you know she's gonna be the the actress um
0: and you're going to audition a bunch of actresses but when you see camilla rhodes you say this is the girl and you cast her yep Um. um Another scene, it, it,
2: scene that I think happens early on is when they go, when Betty and Rita go to Winkie's.
0: Yeah, so this is kind of like the structure of the movie for a little bit is that Betty and Rita have their plot line about both Betty trying to get into Hollywood and trying to uncover who Rita is, and then you'll leave one of those scenes and go into this um, scene with Adam Kesher here, um, you know who does not want to just kowtow to what these mobsters say, and his life falls to shit because of it. (laughs)
2: And the weird Um, uh, scenes with his girlfriend that seem the least related to the plot, but are just fantastic scenes. Um, (laughs) Great
0: scenes. (laughs) Fucking um, Billy Ray
2: Cyrus.
0: (laughs) So yeah, like, like you say, you get the scene where Betty and Rita go to um, this, the, the diner that this other guy was, where we saw this like, you know, bob yeah. figure and uh, um, Guy re-
2: recounting his nightmare.
0: And Guy recounting his nightmare, and at and then... the diner there is a waitress named Diane. Um this is important, she is named Diane and she has the most 2001 lesbian haircut a person can imagine. Um yeah. I- imagine a 2001 lesbian in your head. Now dial it up 20%. And she is making eyes at uh, Betty this whole time. Um, And this is important. it's
2: definitely the the eyes that, like, there's a certain amount that you can see, too, that it's the eyes of, like, when you are a queer person and you recognize that someone else is queer and you're kind of looking at them being like, we see what's going on here, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) We both know. Everybody else in this diner doesn't know, but we know. The three of us, we know. <laughs>
0: um and importantly, as Diane is making eyes at Betty, um Rita starts to freak out a little bit. Like she yeah. just starts to um like she starts to feel really uncomfortable with something. Um yeah. and it's not really clear what she's thinking, what she's uncomfortable with. Um other than she remembers
2: back. this name, Diane Selwyn.
0: Yeah, yes, yeah, she remembers. Yes, she remembers the name Diane Selwyn, and she's like, "Oh, I think maybe that was my name, or someone I knew was named Diane Selwyn." Um, and so that's like their their that's their new lead for where they're going to investigate the mystery next. Back to Adam Kirscher. um, he goes home, and his wife is cheating on him with the pool boy, and is quite frankly shocked and appalled that he would come home and find her cheating. Not upset (laughs) that he discovered she was cheating, but mad at him for discovering that she was cheating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They have a huge fight. There's, like, paint poured over jewelry, and Billy Ray Cyrus is the pool boy, and he... (laughs) Knocks Adam Ketcher the fuck out for a second. Um It's really fucking funny. I <laughs> guess that, that is Adam the way Ketcher. it connects.
2: We'll get there. One of my favorite lines in this movie.
0: <laughs> Adam Ketcher gets in the car and drives away with his tail between his legs and covered in, like, this ugly fucking paint and goes and gets in our apartment somewhere. Yeah. Back to... um Betty and Rita, um, like, get very close to each other, like, just very close to each other, and, oh, we should call, you know, we found Diane Selwyn in the phone book, and we're just gonna call her, and, you know, we're gonna sit very, very close to each other as we, you know, make this phone call, um, and, right, the next thing that happens with them is that, um, you know, uh, Rita sleeps on the couch that night. They wake up the next morning. Coco, um, the landlord, sort of like motherly figure, knocks on the door and is like,
2: "Also, who the key. hell?" Not yes, not I missed. Landlord, I missed a very figure, important thing. But is also ve- female. David Lynch.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. She um, just talks exactly like Gordon Cole talks. <laughs> it's great. It's amazing. I love this shit so much
2: i like, oh, he's still got a cameo without actually being in it.
0: <laughs> I skipped over an important thing, which is that that night, um, Twin Peaks really shows up as the next door neighbor um, looks like a witch and knocks on the door and is like, oh, there's terrible omen and something bad is going to happen. And, oh, it's all very scary. And um oh right and they discover that um i forgot this part it's so important they discover in um rita's like personal effects that she has like a hundred thousand dollars in cash and a blue key in the bottom of her purse um and they just hide that and decide not to think about it Um, (laughs) the next morning coco is like hey why do you have another woman in your apartment um, and you know that witch lady who lives next door to you said she's trouble, and I—if she's trouble, you know she she could be wrong, but if she's trouble, you know you need to get rid of her. Um, I I I think I've hit everything that's important that's happened so far. <laughs>
3: <laughs> there's a um, lot. Um,
2: there's a lot. The other the other piece that I just want to call out here i forget exactly when it happens is that betty has like a casting call um and just like completely nails the audition um this
0: is exactly where i was gonna go next is you see uh i think you get one more scene of like adam Kersher's life just falling to shit that's like fun and good but not that important um i think um go back to um Beat a, Betty and Rita, um, and there's a scene of them rehearsing the the scene that she's going to audition, um, and it's like really flat. Um, Rita cannot act; she's just terrible in the mood. She's just terrible. She like can't remember her lines. It doesn't matter because Betty is the one that's going to be auditioning, but betty's not much better in this sort of like run through in the kitchen like she's kind of like hamming it up and like not it's just not working but she goes to the casting call and she's with this like kind of older soap opera guy um and just crushes it it's just genuinely like some of the best best acting you'll ever see in a movie like you Naomi Watts Naomi Watts in this movie is so good. It cannot be understated like how ama- how amazing Naomi Watts is in this movie and uh right. just really lays it all out loud, uh in this scene.
2: I want to underscore something here too, which is that this is like the best acting that I think we've seen in the film to this point. Um Yes. Not that the like acting has been terrible, but I think to a degree there's been an intentional amount of stilted acting. Um, mm-hmm. like even the, the nightmare, the guy t- telling his nightmare, like, it feels very obvious that he is reading lines. And I think my read is that there's like an intentionality to hear, but we'll, we'll get to that later. But like when they are around the apartment, like Naomi Watts as Betty is not acting nearly as hard as she is in this scene. Um mm. where she's doing the casting call. And I some of it is providing this contrast where you can like really see how impressive that acting is. But I, I have greater like reads on this that we'll get to eventually. But Yeah, I <laughs>
0: I have like capital T thoughts on this, but it'll make more sense with we've like tied the whole movie yeah. together. <laughs> um Um After the casting call, I think is when we get the Bungalows, I think. Yeah. Unless also, I'm somewhere in anything. there,
2: we have the cowboy. I forget when that. Somewhere
0: happens. in here, oh, there's two. So there's one Coen Brothers scene. The Coen Brothers show up for one scene in this movie, which is um, that <laughs> there's like this assassin guy, um, and he like gets his gets his target, but then in the. Uh, trying to get him um, accidentally shoots a lady in the office next door and so he has to like go grab her and drag her through the hallway and shoot her too but then as he's dragging her a cleaning guy sees him and he has to shoot him too <laughs> and then in the process starts a fire and has to just like leave. This will also matter, I promise, yeah. but it is for mostly at this point a lot of stilted acting and weird comedy. <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> um, just the comedy of errors are trying to kill someone
0: the cowboy scene adam kersher continues to be pressured by the mob and goes and meets this cowboy in the middle of the night um and there's like a flickering lamp that's very evocative of the the, the street lamp of, from twin peaks and yeah um when it's basically, illuminated,
2: the cowboy appears, and then as soon as he leaves, it it goes out. Um. Yes,
0: yes, and um, basically the cowboy like threatens him, but in the very like dream logic way that people can threaten people in um David Lynch movies, yeah. <laughs> um, where none of what he's saying really makes sense, but you get the impression that he's not fucking around, <laughs> and That's he says like- um.
2: Like when you see her, you say that's the girl. Uh if you see me two times, you did good. If you see me three times, you did bad. <laughs>
0: uh he says if you see me one time you did good. If you see me two times, you did oh, bad. Oh
2: yeah. I think one um, time more or yeah, I don't know. Well, Yeah,
0: it's one more time and two yeah. more times. Yeah. Um So um From here, I think this is where the rubber really starts meeting the road in this movie I think um they go to Diane Selwyn's um like I, I we didn't figure out what these were but it's yeah. basically like it's like a bunch of houses in a small little gated community that are all kind of like yeah. open into the same courtyard or something anyway it looks like the Shire is what you said <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Specifically, it is this like mode of building homes in California that um, eschews like the alleyways with like garages and all of that to like basically take a similar plot of land but fit more but smaller houses where you kind of like instead of having like an apartment complex that would have like a giant building, you basically just have a bunch of little houses. Um, and this is just like a way that stuff is built in Uh, areas of California Um, and it Mm -hmm. does like when you go in there it becomes this like weird space of just like there's just a bunch of houses all around each other um, because they're like unlike a normal thing where there would be like a street like you literally have to go into the block like the city block to like access other homes um, in a way that like you wouldn't just going into like a building on from off of the street like you would in most cities. Um, Mm
0: hmm um but yeah it
2: looks like the shire
0: <laughs> <laughs> they knock on a door uh, they think diane selwood lives in number 12 so they knock on the door they meet this woman who seems kind of like irritated to see them and she says oh diane lives in 17 but she hasn't been around for a few days um she has some of my stuff can i come over with you guys to get some of my stuff she doesn't end up coming because she ends up having to take a phone call. Yeah. Um, They break into Diane's apartment because no one's there. No one answers the door, but, um, like a window's open. They steal Laura
2: Palmer's diary. Um,
0: they, they steal Laura Palmer's diary and then they go back in the bedroom and they see her wrapped in plastic, essentially. Like it is the same sort of like horrifying, like, like David Lynch, uh, I think does a really good job in his work of like taking death very seriously and like treating it as a sort of and taking murder as like a very horrific thing in the way that it can be. Um, yeah. And we really linger on like a, just a really horrifying shot of a dead young woman. Um, yeah. Uh, and throughout this whole sequence, like as they get closer and closer to Diane Selwyn's body, like Rita is like more and more like, Don't knock on that door. Don't go bother this woman. You know, don't. Let's not break in here. Let's not do this. Like Rita's like, no, 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 and Betty's like, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be just like the movies. You know. Yeah. Um. For oh. Um,
2: this is the longest synopsis we've ever done on this podcast.
0: (laughs) It, it's a hard movie to s- synopsize, and it it all of it matters and also I kind of wish we didn't have to but I feel like we yeah. have to. <laughs> um the other thing that happens in here that I totally skipped past was that um Betty after the casting call uh where she really just like does an incredible job at this casting call is taken to the set of Adam Kersher's film and, like, makes really meaningful eye contact with Adam Kersher. Um And it she's going to get to audition soon, but um, Camilla Rhodes comes up, and Adam casts her, and then makes more meaningful eye contact with Betty, and Betty kind of runs out, and it feels like they've exchanged, you know adam has told her just through eye contact that i wanted you betty but like or i'm sorry but it has to be camilla or something Mm -hmm. like that you know um after the dead body stuff betty and rita um go home rita um starts cutting her own hair and betty puts her in a blonde wig that makes her look exactly like betty and they have sex um persona (laughs) happens yeah, persona the Berkman film <laughs>
2: <laughs> then persona the game happens um and they go to the <laughs> velvet room
0: <laughs> um
2: which of course is just is the, stealing from david lynch but <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the best part of the movie um rita wakes up in the middle of the night and demands they go they go to this club um rebecca del rio comes out and um uh, uh, well first you get a weird magician guy saying no i banda um and he like really insists to you that like you know you're not seeing a live performance what you're hearing is a recording but it looks like it's real um yeah and then you see rebecca del rio come out and do one of the most incredible like vocal performances that anybody has ever done yeah <laughs> um um And then
2: I think key in this moment, too, is that, like, before this happens, there's the the muted trumpet, and someone comes out playing the muted trumpet, and then reveals all along that it has been a recording, um, Mm -hmm. and, like, you know, bows while the, like, trumpet music is still happening, even though he's no longer playing it, um, because he was never truly playing it. Um, Yes. And so then, as the song is ending... Rebecca Del Rio seemingly dies And yet the song continues over it Yes Again doing this like The performers ended and yet the performance is continuing Because it's like Something beyond or it's like you know it's a recording But also we'll get into More thoughts
0: Yes um Rebecca Del Rio Did have to actually perform that For the recording that she then Dies while lip syncing Yeah Um Uh throughout this sort of you know 10 minute section of the film the color blue starts showing up more and more and they go to the club and there's like a lot of blue outside the club and then as rebecca del rio is introduced you see in the balcony there's a person in a blue wig and um uh, after rebecca del rio leaves the scene like blue lights flash everywhere and um the the red velvet curtain that once that the red velvet curtain is now lit with such an intense blue that it appears to be a blue velvet curtain um, persona and <laughs> if you've seen the film firewalk with me parts of your brain are on fire right now <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes <laughs> this movie is great i love twin peaks <laughs>
0: I love Twin Peaks so much. I'm gonna get a blue rose tattoo. Um I might really get a blue key tattoo. That. Um they a go blue
2: key and rose tattoo.
0: Yes. Um blue lights flash all over Betty's face. Rita gets more and more horrified. Um Betty is getting more scared too. And um they go back to the apartment. While while they're
2: there, Betty finds a mm -hmm. blue box in her purse that matches the key that was found in Rita's bag.
0: Yes, Um, they find a blue box that has like a triangle-shaped hole and the key was triangle-shaped. So they're like, okay, we have to go back home and put the key in this box. They go home. um, As they go toward the bedroom, Betty disappears. Rita um, you know uh, is all alone and puts the key in the box. Camera zooms into the box, uh, box falls to the floor. You see, uh, the aunt Roth is in the apartment. Um, you know, and you get the cowboy guy appearing on screen again and saying, it's time to wake up. Um, this is important. The the
2: dead corpse (laughs) that we saw previously of the young woman.
0: Yes. Um, is saying this to the dead corpse. Uh, And then we go to... um, Names are about to get really weird. So I'm going to refer to this character for a moment as Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts wakes up out of bed with the same haircut, the same lesbian haircut as the waitress named Diane we met earlier. Um, Someone's knocking at her door. She goes to answer the door. It's the woman who was at the apartment that they were at earlier and she wants all her stuff. And it's heavily implied that this is like a, this, this is a breakup thing, you know, that yeah. like, Oh, we broke up and you still have, all. Oh, like, they, were you know, <laughs> they were fucking, they were fucking. This also led to the very funny thing that like, um, Betty and Rita were having sex and we're like, that eh, seems kind of gay um these next scenes where two where women are just constantly looking at each other and being kind of upset with each other we're like oh they (laughs) fucking because this is who we are (laughs) yeah i'm really sorry about how long this summary is i'm really sorry (laughs) i'm gonna have to pee when this is over (laughs) i'm sorry this movie is so much all of this matters and it frames all the discussion anyway um she refers the the woman who is coming to Naomi Watts' apartment refers to Naomi Watts as Diane, and you're like, oh, so she's Diane? Question mark. Yeah. And you know, Diane is like going around her apartment and it kind of like remembering things. Um and she like thinks that she sees um the ca- the character uh Laura Laura Herring's character who she refers to as Camilla like oh Camilla it's you and yeah. you know she looks at the couch and reminds remembers a time they had sex on the couch but then um Camilla um breaks up yeah. with her as and then no, she remembers
2: I think we've the, referred to previously Betty being Naomi Watts. I don't know if we've said that Laura Herring is the actress who plays Rita. So it's the yes, actress because who I plays couldn't Rita. He's being called Camilla now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. Rita being played by Laura Herring is now being referred to as Camilla for this last section of the film. Um, uh, we get more memory. Basically like this last section of the film, uh, is kind of Camilla remember, or not Camilla, Diane, who we used to know as Betty, remembering a bunch of stuff. And so she remembers when she first met, uh, Camilla. She remembers this time on set that she saw, um, because camilla is clearly like a big time movie star and diane plays like a small bit role in this film she might even be an extra i can't tell
2: is clearly Um, still doing the i am trying to make it as an actress in la so i also have a full-time job as a waitress at Winkies.
0: (laughs) yes very much so um and she like she remembers the first time they met, she remembers this time that um, Camilla was hitting on the director, and she remembers this party that they went to where, um, you know, um, Camilla break, uh, Camilla announces that she's getting married to uh, the director, Adam, and, like, she meets Adam's mom, who's Coco, um, and Coco is very nice to her as she, like, very clearly has seen that like camilla and adam do this to people like they fool around and they're do all these sorts of infidelities in their marriage but at the end of the day like um diane is just another woman naomi watts is going to like come in and out of their life and she she is very invested in this relationship but um camilla is not um and then you get Diane remembering that she hired a hitman to kill Camilla. <laughs> um, And you see the cowboy again a second time at some point in the sequence. I don't remember. Um, uh, and then you get the hitman saying, "If you, you know, I'm going to leave this blue key uh, when the job is done at the place we talked about. Uh, and then you, cut to diane in her apartment and the blue key is on the coffee table and she's having all these memories and um is suddenly like being chased by the elderly smiling grandparents we see and like lights are flashing and they're screaming and they're yelling and freaking around and she's scared and she runs into her bedroom and grabs a gun and kills herself um and Falling I, in the
2: position that we we saw previously yes
0: following Um, following the position that we saw this other dead girl and um i should put a trigger warning in at the beginning of the podcast i will remember to do that um and um like the bedroom is enveloped in smoke and you go back out you pull back out to like the bright hollywood lights um and then in the theater, this woman in the blue wig says, Silencio, and the movie ends. Yeah, and I'm really also, sorry that that summary mentions, took forever.
2: I think the name of the club that they go to was Club Silencio, and they say Silencio a lot in the club then, too. Um, yes, yes. Anyway, uh, I have Spiro Bladder, so I'm going to go pee.
0: <laughs> yes. I'm sorry that took so long. It mattered. It <laughs> I does promise. matter.
2: It does matter, but I'm going to go pee. This is going to be our longest episode yet. <laughs> I'll be back.
3: Good morning. It's June 25, 2021. And if you can believe it, it's a Friday once again. Here in L.A., a sunny morning, very still right now, 61 degrees Fahrenheit around 16 Celsius. Today, I'm thinking about Lou Reed and his version of this magic moment. This afternoon, it'll be going up to 78 degrees Fahrenheit, about 26 Celsius, and we're going to be enjoying these beautiful blue skies and golden sunshine all along the way, everyone, have a great day.
0: So, um, that's all plot. That's all, like, the facts of the movie, right? Um, I think probably how I interpret this movie, and I didn't run it by you at all, but I, I would imagine you feel similarly-ish, is that this is, like, The first, everything before Club Silencio is a dream that um, Naomi Watts' character is having. And everything after Club Silencio is the sort of, like, is her remembering events that sort of lead to this dream that she is having. I I think is how I would characterize this. Um, Would you? Is, do you think I'm more or less on the right on the right track there? <laughs> Wait,
2: explain explain that again.
0: Um, I think of everything leading up to Club Silencio and the the cowboy saying "Wake up." I think of all of that as a dream that Noemi wants character is having, and I think of everything after that as like her memories of like everything leading up to her death basically um that is broadly how i interpret that
2: i think Um, this this is something that's like that i was getting into when i was talking about magical realism and how i've like a mood that i've often entered i think when i first mm -hmm. watched this movie i i probably agreed so one of the things that i want to like talk about here and then I, i can like get into my read a little bit more is that I think when I first watched this and I, I was trying to think about it and trying to come to some understanding of it, um, a big thing that I noted was that like, so a lot of the acting is very stilted for a lot of the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie, um, mm-hmm. like the like first part, like if we're dividing it up into here's like Betty and Rita, here is... Um, why am i Diane and Camilla Diane and Camilla um, if we like separate those out into the two parts um but the first part like the acting is very stilted and it is only when characters are acting that it like is good acting but then that like good acting actually approximates like realist to some degree or like realism like these mm-hmm. are people having actual emotions rather than most of the acting up until that point feel so like mm-hmm. false and artificial like Naomi Watts playing Betty is so much of like when you go to a diner and there's like clearly someone who's just like, this is their job to like be the, you know, wait staff here. And they're trying very hard to just like smile and be like friendly because they know they'll probably get better tips. And you can also clearly tell that like underneath, like they don't, they are not happy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And there's like a certain vibe of that. Like of just like, everything feels so forced and fake. Um, and then you get the like acting is figured as like this actually emotive, like this is reaching out some emotional reality. Um, and then you also get that emotional reality when um, Rebecca Del Rio is singing. And then the acting in the second half is generally more naturalistic and is not like stilted in the way that it has been in the first half. Mm -hmm. And so I think when I first watched it, I did read it as like, this is, this is setting up like the stilted acting in the first half is pointing towards it being a dream. And then the like more, um, naturalistic acting in the second half is pointing more towards that being reality. But then the more I think about it, the more that like, I continue to hesitate between those reads because like. What is then being figured in the first part is that when people are acting when they are like putting on a performance when they are creating unreality is when we get this like like it is actually touching on the fact that a lot of what we consider naturalistic acting in films is actually not how a lot of people actually act it's how we've come to expect yeah. like films operate um mm-hmm. and so that could actually point towards the first half is reality the second half is this weird dream state um Mm -hmm. and i i think what i've landed on is i'm actually like what is so interesting to me about this is that i think there's lots of like this is one thing that i'm pointing out but i think there are lots of things that point to we have these two competing versions of reality and i don't actually know anymore if i have like a decision on which of those is real or not Mm -hmm. and what i've become more interested in is the way that like Especially this being a film that we are watching (laughs) that is a very us film because it's gay. (laughs) Like there are also two competing fantasies. Like one, I'm watching these as two competing realities. On the other hand, I'm watching it as two competing fantasies where both of these are unreal, which is true in like the construction of film. But I think is also true in that the fantasy that exists in the first half is this fantasy of like the lesbian romance as like in some way, like it is just the two of them. No one else ever intercedes into that romance and they just Mm -hmm. love each other very purely. And it like towards the very end is expressed through them, like having sex and saying, I love you to each other repeatedly. Um, Mm -hmm. The second half is this, fantasy that I think is even more like that first one is kind of playing into like this pornographic fantasy of, of lesbianism. Cause I, I think this film is very engaged with like, what are male fantasies of, of like lesbian sexuality or of like feminine sexuality where you can also watch it. And it's like, Oh, these are like, this is the fantasy of the two women who are having sex. And you're just like, there's no guy there. The second one I think is playing into this fantasy that exists less in like this pornographic depiction although i'm sure there's porn around this as well but is especially common in like the fantasy that a lot of straight men have around queer women which is the fantasy of if my dick's just good enough then like i Mm -hmm. will be able to get the lesbian which is kind of what like adam is doing and it's kind of like yeah like that continues to be the whole thing of that is like betty continues to be denied having like this romantic connection to the woman that she wants to have, or not Betty, but Diane, continues <laughs> to have this like romantic connection, uh, and is having it denied, like and does not mm-hmm. get to have it, and that's like where we get this sad ending. Um, and I think the the film is then also playing with like that first one again. I think points towards something more real, which is that mm-hmm. like. It is it is less this ideal romance and it is more the romance where like there are messy breakups and things. Mm -hmm. But I think when I'm doing that I'm also thinking about like writing that has been done around realism in film that has begun to assert this idea of like, why is it that when things are sad and end badly, we read that as more Mm -hmm. realistic, even though good things can also happen in reality? Why is it that when if a film ends on a high note, we can, we as an audience view it as less real than when it ends on, like, a downer.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: That is also constructing, like, a sense that we have of reality as, like, being more depressing than, like... Uh, fictional spaces but that is not necessarily always the case either so I'm like fully in the like I don't know which of these is real (laughs) and I at this point no longer care
0: (laughs) yeah I think um, like I think that I do uh, so even as I'm talking through it right like I'm like well i i think when i as i'm talking i'm realizing that like i don't necessarily i have in the past read the first part the first you know hour and a half of the film as being a dream and the last 45 minutes or so being um a reality um i think that is how i have often read the movie as i'm talking about it like i don't know that that's true because i think so much of the movie and i think lynch lynch literally has a magician walk out on stage and say it is that like there is no band there is no um there is no real reality to this this is all a constructed fiction space and um like you get this in the the contrast between um uh betty and rita acting out this scene in the apartment versus uh betty acting it out in the audition room with this other actor and how in one it's very wooden and in the other it's very like erotic and electrifying and like convincing and good and um like um i think like lynch is spelling out in you know no uncertain terms like that like none of this is real all of this is like fiction and um like all of this all of this fiction um is here to entertain you an audience and sort of like the other thing that kind of gets obfuscated in trying to figure out what's real and what's not in this movie is that all of this fiction all of this entertainment for you the audience oftentimes comes at the cost of real people um and you know thousands of young women every year move to los angeles in the hopes that they're going to become you know um in the hopes that they're going to become naomi watts and it, it doesn't happen. And you work at this diner that you hate for however many years um, and w- young women die. And like, you know, this is what the movie literally like you see the sign that says Sunset Boulevard and people talk about Sunset Boulevard. And like, that's what this that's what Sunset Boulevard, the film is about, is about how like Hollywood as a industry eats up and kills young women constantly and for your entertainment like you the american viewers and um instead of thinking about that um people just get caught up in like what's the right way to watch mulholland drive (laughs) you
2: know yeah um Um, this is maybe one too i I can bring in my little segment where i looked at abstracts um this Compared to the other movies we've done, I think had the most of just like, wow, there's a bunch of writing about this film. Uh, which is maybe mm-hmm. unsurprising. <laughs> um, it is a it is a film that I think like it is harder to like quickly fall down on like this is what it's doing, and I think that like encourages a certain amount of academic writing. <laughs> um But one that I wanted to specifically pull out, so a lot of them are around like psychoanalytic readings, talking about dream spaces, Mm -hmm. talking about surrealism. Um, One that I wanted to draw out because I think it's the one that like is interesting because it's touching on things that I'm seeing here and yet is is specifically like pointing towards surrealism um, is this one called uh, Noe Banda, and yet we hear a band David Lynch's reversal of coherence in Mulholland Drive. This is by Jennifer A. Hudson. Um, I'm just going to like read a little bit. This is one where it's just like there's not really an abstract. It's just you get like the first page of the paper. Um, As Westerners, we tend to inscribe various stimuli with the discourse of traditional logic, favoring the idea that the endless series of events, persons and images that abound in our experience can be reduced to a singular and cohesive whole. In Mulholland Drive, a film that has puzzled viewers since its world premiere, David Lynch successfully reverses coherence by making the traditional sense or logic of the temporal, spatial, psychological, and linguistic conditions of the film's characters and surrealist world defer to the non-logical sense, the intuitive or emotional perception of those conditions." Although critics remain divided on whether or not logical sense can be derived from Mulholland Drive, both sides, when examining or reviewing the film, have either ignored or glossed over Lynch's aesthetic interest in the realms of the unexplained and his distrust of linguistic structure. This failure, one might argue, does Lynch and his films a great disservice. When looking at... Throughout this, they abbreviate Mulholland Drive as just Drive, which... is is now funny now that drive is a movie that exists Um, but when looking at drive it is important to consider lynch's aesthetic principles regarding the discourse of sense and provide a close reading of how he defers the discourse of traditional logic to the discourse of non-logic in the film this essay examines the character of rita and the club silencio setting um and seen as examples of this deferral um then it kind of goes on from there um, mm-hmm. what I find interesting here is that it is pointing toward like, it is talking about surrealism and I, I have not fully read this article. Um, I might see if I can like find a full copy of it so this one seems pretty interesting mm-hmm. because the way that they're employing surrealistic right now is to describe the world. And I, that feels like something where I think almost the author might be pointing towards a way that people understand the world of David Lynch films but that the like beginning of here talking about as Westerners, we tend to inscribe various stimuli with the discourse of traditional logic is I'm like, Oh, you're getting into the magical realist stuff that I'm excited about. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And the, the way that like, I think I've come to a realization that when it comes to especially film, like this is a big thing about this podcast is I'm less interested in coherence or cohesion. And I'm more interested in like, what is incoherent and like, what is the fun of watching something that has incoherence that is like sometimes non-logical where images just happen and they happen in sequences and you have to try to ascribe some logic to it, but that is like a process that you are doing as the audience and not something necessarily intrinsic to the film. Um, Mm -hmm. By juxtaposing those images, they are creating things for you. And I, I like it when it specifically does it in ways that like push at your sense of coherent, temporal, Progression and like all these like forms of traditional logic it's part of what i love so much about this film so (laughs) i know Mm -hmm. i just like went full academic here but this paper actually seems interesting
0: (laughs) Um, well i mean like sort of the conversation that you and i had off mic last week was about that like and after watching this movie i maybe feel a little differently than what i said last week which is great because i didn't say that any of that into a microphone um (laughs) like i think people kind of describe lynch as surreal and leave it there um because what they mean is that he's weird you know um and that uh his movies maybe like ask <sighs> i think i think people say that to mean that his movies are weird um yeah. and i don't think of him often as a surrealist person because i think of surrealism as so concerned with with psychoanalysis and with sort of like ah i'm going to draw you know in 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 painting um you get the very realistic painting of the clock that is doing something that a clock does not do in reality. The clock does not melt in reality. Um or you get um a very unrealistic object drawn in a I did that's what I just said. <laughs> you get like unrealistic objects drawn in realistic ways and realistic objects drawn in unrealistic ways and I don't always think that the, I don't think that that's what um I don't think that that's what Lynch does. I don't think he is concerned with these things are real and these things are not because I think how he approaches it is that it's a film. None of it's real. Like none of this is true. And so I think that's why I lean more toward like seeing Mulholland and Twin Peaks as magical realist because like, You know, kind of like in the most basic terms of what we were talking about earlier, like this is a movie that presents here's one reality where they're called Betty and Rita and do these things, and here is a different reality. Um, and you know, these things are at odds, and both of them are presented in sort of like most movies that are produced in the u.s at least um and certainly in um you know certainly in the 2000s and before and after and you know um do continuity editing which sort of does this sort of sleight of hand where it's trying to convince you that it's real by being not noticeable continuity editing is very concerned with like you're, you barely notice that you're watching a movie. Like, it all just looks how it would look if you were standing there on the set. Um, yeah, the, the and, adage of
2: like continuity editing is if the editor is doing their job right, you don't realize that it, the editor is doing anything at all. That like their job is to do it yes. so well that it, they just like disappear.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is not Lynch's concern. Lynch, is, Lynch wants you to always remember that you are watching a movie you know um... i think
2: this is also why he's so obsessed with like these digital and also like analog video effects that are very Mm -hmm. clearly effects but that still like evoke emotional response and he's more interested in having that emotional response than make it convincing and i think is actually interested Mm -hmm. in having like what is unconvincing special effects that still like generate some other aesthetic response in you um because he he is, I think, as you're saying, like, pointedly not interested in really trying to depict reality in this, like, straightforward sense.
0: Yeah, and I think that, like, um, uh, I think that's, like, the fun for him. I think that's, like, you know, um, for me, like, the thing that, like, the thing that is so fun about this movie is that, like, I feel like my feelings about the movie matter just as much as, like, like yesterday I watched an episode of Columbo, and I, I love Columbo. Columbo's great. It doesn't really matter what I think about Columbo. Columbo is just going to happen, and I'm going to observe Columbo and be entertained, Um, like. David Lynch movies and especially Mulholland drive feel so concerned with like, what are you bringing to this movie? Because when I first saw this movie, when I was 18, um, I wasn't having gay sex and I felt very differently about it now as a person who sometimes has gay sex, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and like the person, the person watching the movie is as much as part of the film as, um, the people making the movie, you know?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know, I know for me, like, cause often when I, when I'm thinking about these kinds of magical realists, like, um, constructions that I think is happening here, like we we're talking about the reality slash fantasy and like how both are kind of pos- positioned as realities and both are also kind of positioned as fantasies. And there's like a tension there. Um, and so then I often think about like, so then what is the collapsing into one or the other doing that is like denying some potential that exists in like the flux between the two. And that's part of why this movie I I enjoy so, like, especially this time because I'm also watching this being like far more queer now (laughs) than um, (laughs) like, I don't know if I knew I was a, a girl when I last watched this movie. I don't actually remember exactly the last time I've Mm. watched it. Um, But like, I think part of what, what is happening in here. And again, like I think David Lynch is very concerned with gender trauma and is in collapsing into one of these is real. And one of these is unreal. Like one of these is the dream. And one of them is the reality you are collapsing like the complexities of relationships and in this film, it being figured specifically as like queer or lesbian relationships into one of two possibilities where it is like this idealized, um, like, Oh, the, the purity of, I rant about this with like Evangelion as well. I think this comes up with like Kaworu, go listen to the latest episode of ghost divers. Um, but (laughs) like, the idea of queerness as, oh, the fundamental divide between, and like, inhumanity is the divide between men and women, and so don't queer people have it so great and easy because everything just makes sense if it's two men or if it's two women, um, which is this, like, very, like, that's not the reality of it, but that is a... a myth that exists about queer sex and about like queer relationships um is just like oh it's so much easier to just hang out with like the guys than it is with my girlfriend and so gay guys must have it so easy and it's like no like romantic relationships are always going to be fraught to some degree and then the Mm -hmm. other side of it is this like very like queer relationships are suffering um like you you never like get any sort of true um happiness within them which is like what's happening with diane um and so what happens when you collapse those down is that you collapse down the like complexities of queer relationship into either the idealized like oh it's so happy it's so great or like queerness is suffering and then in fact like again it's the tension between those things that actually reaches at a a thing that feels more true or real to me about relationships in general as well as queer relationships um Mm -hmm. and so i think like for me and i don't know if david lynch is doing this at all (laughs) david lynch is clearly concerned with gender trauma i don't know if he's making this film being like this is a film about you do a much better david lynch impression i'm not gonna even try this This is a film film. Beautiful. I'm so glad that I got you to do it finally. Um it's one of my favorite parts of X4 audios whenever you do a David Lynch impression. I I wanna
0: <laughs> I wanna interrupt very briefly to say I do not do a David Lynch impression. I do Chris uh, Remo doing Gordon <laughs> Cole.
2: This, this is this is true. It is part of why I love your your Chris Remo doing David <laughs> Your Chris Remo doing David Lynch portraying Gordon Cole impression. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that, like, David Lynch necessarily sat down and was like, this is a film that's about, like, the the reality of queer relationships versus the, like, idealized fantastical forms that happen um, or that, like, mm-hmm. are perceived. And yeah, I think this is, like, my... This is what I get out of this film now, watching it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he's playing with tropes of fantasy and how those tropes intersect with, like the fantasies around queer sex that then enable that reading. And it is again, like I do think David Lynch is doing it because I agree with you that I think David Lynch is concerned with what does the audience bring and how is the audience responding to it? And so that like is himself, I think open to like once his, his films to be full of potentiality that people can read into. um, So in that sense, mine is the the correct, true reading of this film. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I had some other, other articles.
2: I'm I'm not going to go as much into them. One of them is called "The Other Dream Girl: Female Bisexuality as the Dark Secret of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive." Um, one is called "Spectacular Failure: The Figure of the Lesbian in Mulholland Drive," and I just want to say for this one, um, the first page here doesn't talk about lesbianism at all and uh goes to great length just describing the contrast between like classical tragedy and how modern tragedy differs from it um seems like a wild paper it would be cool to read all of that i i have no idea what's going on the last one is a joke here um so this one is called the presence of the past mulholland drive against vertigo um this paper seems to be asserting that uh Vertigo is no longer relevant because Mulholland Drive exists. And so people, instead of trying to understand Vertigo, now try to understand Mulholland Drive. And I just wanted to bring this up because, uh, Autumn, we don't have to watch Vertigo anymore. This paper said so. We watched, we watched Mulholland Drive. Although, we're going to have to get to the the lack of stairs eventually. But I, we'll, <laughs> you might have thoughts.
0: We'll, we'll circle back. We'll circle back. Um, I... We... I like a lot of Hitchcock. Um, we'll talk about some Hitchcock at some point on this, I'm sure. Uh, it ain't going to be fucking Vertigo.
2: <laughs> I think Rear Window <laughs> gonna is be... my favorite.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 Then we're agreed. I was like, oh, maybe Strangers on a Train. Maybe this. I really like Rear Window, but I don't know. But you said it, and I'm like, okay, cool, because Rear Window is my favorite. I'm not going to hem and haw. I'm just going <laughs> to... We'll do Rear Window at some point. <laughs> um, I brought an article this time
2: oh oh (laughs) go go on (laughs) you you gave me a little taste of what you're thank you for joining in on my bit autumn (laughs) i appreciate you please continue
0: (laughs) i'm just gonna read i'm just gonna read straight from the article i'm just gonna read the first uh you know what let me scroll just a little bit can i make
2: a request Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> because I know that this article, without giving away too much, is written in a certain kind of way that mm-hmm. could be translated to say how David Lynch does Gordon Cole.
0: <laughs> uh, so I'll <laughs> Will do you my best. My request? I'm, I'm very aware, <laughs> I'm very aware that Nora is sleeping in the other room, but. I, okay, I have to get into the voice, and there, there's a way that I get into the voice. You're going to laugh. We're all going to laugh. It's going to be a good time. Goop. Cool. David Lynch is one of Hulk's favorite filmmakers. This may sound strange to a portion of Hulk's read... I can't do it in cool. This may sound strange to a portion of Hulk's readers... No, it's getting too southern. I can't do it. I have to. I have to okay. actually shout at the microphone to do it, and I will wake up Nora. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can just
2: I, it normally. <laughs> I
0: just have know. a. I just have hell brain. I. I'm not going to actually bring this article. Um, I have hell brain, and sometimes I remember things that Film Crit Hulk read when I was or Kit hulk wrote when I was you know, 16 years old or whatever. Um, kit hulk has an article about Mulholland Drive. Um, I, here's an excerpt. I, I actually know the excerpt I'm going to pull out here. Um, Coop. Semiotics is not truly definitive, but it is still definitive enough to have real value. Um... Semionics require the de- dedu- that the deduction both makes sense based on all the evidence and thus fits into the context of everything else presented. Um, there's 90 million lost theories out there that are based on one detail and go on for pages and pages without ever fitting in a larger context outside the argument. Um... I just think Hulk is a hack writer and I think that approaching Mulholland Drive like it's a puzzle box, like you would approach Lost, um, yeah. is the death of art. <laughs> yeah. um, that's I, all. I, ex-
2: I extremely agree. Um, should, shall, shall this- I just Can I just read this part that you also tweeted because I hate it so much?
0: Phil, Phil Grit Hulk wrote an article about Mulholland Drive where he basically tries to turn turn it into a puzzle box and it sucks but please read this um <laughs> or do you want me to read this part that i tweeted out is it the penn state thing
2: um this is the the part that's talking about the Noe banda <laughs> there is no band scene
0: cool music plays a man comes out and speaks into a microphone he yells no i banda <laughs> And then a clarinet plays, and it's the same. <laughs> okay, I can't do this in Gordon Cole voice, because Gordon Cole would never say, motherfucking. <laughs> and then a clarinet plays, and it's the same music from Chung King Express. <laughs> How's that for a reference? I can't do that. Just. The. the...
2: The brainwork that you have to have to like be like this is clearly a reference to Chung King Express and that is more significant than the filmic realities being created
0: here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a stupid podcast. <laughs> this is a stupid podcast. <sighs> anyway
2: do we have final thoughts on the drive before we rate it the stairwells
0: um yeah and i think this is going to tie into the stairwells itself um we talked a lot about plot and you know surrealism and magic realism and all these sorts of things i i the thing that we did not talk about enough that I really want to emphasize is that like um from like you know just an aesthetic perspective like movies are an aesthetic experience um nobody like David Lynch is like heavyweight champion of the world just like Mulholland Drive is an absolute tour de force of just like yeah He's just giving you so much. Every scene is so every scene is coming from a different movie and all of these movies are incredible. You know, yeah. um like we've kind of touched on it a, a little bit, but it's just like be, the nature of everything being so disjointed and dreamlike is that just like he just gets to do a zillion different things and he's just amazing at all of them also angela battle score is just oh my god (laughs) it's so it's so him (laughs) like if you've heard if you've heard the twin peaks theme you're gonna hear any song in mulholland drive and you're gonna be like is that the guy who did the twin peaks theme (laughs) because they all sound like this yeah it's amazing (laughs)
2: Um, this did remind me of something that I, I wanted to bring up. It was like one shot in particular that um, maybe we've we've talked about some like the lights and thing like the light with the cowboy. Um, a lot of that is just like very David Lynch aesthetic. Um, but one thing in particular that stood out to me as just like a small moment is uh, after the car crash. There's just like shots of the smoke billowing which of course like Mm -hmm. kind of get mirrored towards the end. But then there's also just a shot of like fire coming out of the car. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I saw that those, I was struck by something that I, I think I really, really appreciate in a lot of David Lynch that I've seen. I don't, I don't know a ton about production. So like I could be completely off base. The vibe I get is that like, even though David Lynch and Stanley Kubrick occupy similar spaces in my head, like obviously David Lynch is doing less takes than Kubrick. Like Kubrick was like extremely well known for just using way, way, way more like feet of film than any other Mm -hmm. director because he just like Mm -hmm. needed everything to be like completely precise. Um, Mm -hmm. In a lot of David Lynch stuff, I see these moments and like, I think that this is true that he probably is not someone who is often asking for lots and lots of takes because I know the story of how Bob came to be in Twin Peaks, which is literally that like he was kind of stuck in the room and David Lynch was just like, let's film this. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm going to use it for. And then they filmed a uh, shot where the acting was good, but then the, you know, set the person who played Bob was just this like um, set coordinator or something just showed up in the mirror when like the actress goes up and the camera follows her. Um, cause she's like emoting. And then we get the shot of Bob in the mirror and David Lynch was just like, Oh, now I have this whole idea of like how I'm going to use this figure of, of Bob in like this part of twin beaks. to like suggest these things about what's happening in this house. Um, And that is the kind of approach that feels very, like, you don't do that unless you are a filmmaker who's incredibly open to the fact that, like, you are filming stuff and you have to give up some control. And actually, if you give up some control to, like, I am recording things and I have to, like... I can't fully control this in the way that Stanley Kubrick would try to control this. You will actually Mm -hmm. get these moments where like you, you will tune yourself into seeing things that are really interesting that happen accidentally as a course of just making a film and then like choosing to fold it in and make it meaningful. And it's something that really stands out to about me or to me about Mm -hmm. um, David Lynch it was also something that, like, you know, I've talked a little bit about how I did film stuff, and I got really interested in, like, the collaborative nature of it, and the the fact that you are filming, like, you are filming reality, but then, like, constructing an unreality, and you can't fully control what you're, you're filming, um, and leaning into that, and that's why I got, like, more interested in documentary myself, but, like this is just a mode of filmmaking that is very exciting to me as someone who has done it where it's just like stuff just happens and i feel like there are moments in this film that probably fall into this as well and i don't know exactly what they are but like stuff just happens and you just roll with it and it actually makes the film more interesting and like um provides more like weird texture to it that like makes it that leans into this like Tension between reality and unreality, and like competing realities that we've been talking about, um, that just make it all like fabulous to me. And mm-hmm. it has one of these things, too, of just like Stanley Kubrick was like famously terrible to work with, um, mm-hmm. because he was just such like exacting perfectionist and just demanded so much of people. A lot of what I've heard of from David Lynch is that he's like an incredibly jovial person on set, even while they're Mm -hmm. filming like some truly heinous shit. And I just, I feel like more people should make films the way that David Lynch seems to (laughs) feel free to correct me (laughs) if you know some shit about David Lynch, but like, it just seems like a better way to do it. And you still get some (sighs) fucking incredible films.
3: I I say this loving Kubrick.
2: I say this loving Kubrick. (laughs)
0: But the, the, I mean, you can see it in like, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody isn't in, in his entire life, actor, acting wise, I'll say acting wise, I don't think anybody made two movies with Stanley Kubrick. Um, you know, everybody makes another movie with David Lynch. Uh, like, David Lynch hasn't said Kyle McLaughlin's name right in the last 35 years and Kyle MacLachlan's like, oh, that's my best friend. <laughs> Uh, i Um, love david lynch i do too um do we have have
2: emails i know we have one i don't know if we got any more in the the interim um i think it's just the one but i'll liked one of my tweets so i don't know if they wrote in or if they just liked my tweet about it while we were watching the movie
0: um it's just the one email okay um it's from kim pod kim from to the pod, Kim. Uh, I'm not. I thought about reading this in the Gordon Cole voice. I'm not going to do it. Uh, Hi, first time listener, longtime email haver. Um, all the forums are abuzz with the latest celeb gossip about a Twin Peaks podcast, and I feel like you've been dancing around the issue, and it's rude to your loyal fans. Uh, I've never seen a solo. I've never seen solo a star Wars story, but I think Hannah told me how he got the name solo and I shook my head. So that's my review. I hope <laughs> you both enjoyed Mulholland drive. That's a good fucking movie. Have a nice night.
2: It's a good fucking movie. Um, thank you, Kim. Also, I want to say the title of this email was uh twin tweaks podcast. <laughs> and I just want to say <laughs> twink Peas podcast was right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um are we doing a twin peaks podcast
0: um
2: i mean not anytime soon
0: i mean i'm gonna answer this not anytime in 2021 and probably not in 2022 um yeah i
2: feel like the earliest we could do it is 2022 and that's still um we i would I've been periodically joking about us doing a Twin Peaks podcast for two reasons. One is that I joked about us doing this podcast, and then it finally became a reality. And so I just think it's funny to joke about this, because if it finally happens, I can be like, damn, it worked again. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) The other reason, though, why I, I, I have been joking especially hard about doing the Twin Peaks podcast right now is just the fact that, like... We had a conversation about how you were podcasting a lot, and you're like, "But airplanes ending," and then you started three fucking podcasts, and so I'm kind of just doing it to roast you, <laughs> being like, "So do you want to start another podcast?"
0: <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> That's anyway, not fair.
2: um, anyway, um,
0: the thing that we would have to do to make a Twin Peaks podcast work, I think, is just say okay, um, there's 48 episodes of Twin Peaks and a movie for the next, you know, 49 weeks. This is a Twin Peaks podcast. I think we would just have to make Ornate Stairwells a uh, Twin Peaks podcast for an entire year. And I'm not going to say no to that, but... um, We're not doing that anytime soon. I do really like the podcast that we do as it exists. (laughs) And we're not doing that anytime soon. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, 2022 rolls around and, you know, situation changes and we can do like, I can fit in another podcast because something else happens that I'm not, you know, whatever. Like I, I, all my podcasts right now, like I feel very good about and I'm not dropping any of them so uh I'm not adding a Twin Peaks podcast it would have to cannibalize this one you know <laughs>
2: Yeah Yeah I think um, it it is like something radically has to change in uh both of our lives honestly for
0: Yeah cuz also you have to a toddler to Yeah
2: I have a, I have a toddler and I was joking <laughs> while we were watching the movie about starting a Twin Peaks podcast and Emily was just like no <laughs> no (laughs) i'm 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 putting my foot down autumn has too many fucking podcasts (laughs) um but i i was fully joking because it is just like yeah yeah, something either has to radically change um in our availability (laughs) as as people who can do podcasts um or yeah it has to this just become we just get tired of doing this and want to shake it up for a little bit and we do a twin peaks podcast instead and then return to this is i think the other honestly the, the thing
0: that is the thing that would make a twin peaks podcast happen would be like if we just had two straight months where it's like man we just can't find good movies like we're just like like if if i had a spell where i was like i just don't want to watch any like black and white art movies anymore then we would pull the trigger and start a twin peaks podcast you know yeah <laughs> but um that's not going to happen anytime soon <laughs> yeah
2: we're having, we're having a lot of fun with this podcast and yeah uh, i would have a lot of fun doing a twin peaks podcast but
0: it would be a different thing
2: it would, it would be different
0: <laughs> also also um Cannot stress this enough. Time,
2: if we had infinite time, we would already be doing a Twin Peaks podcast.
0: Yeah, if we didn't both have jobs, we would be yeah. doing a Twin Peaks podcast. Um, the other thing I will say is that like, I think if we did a Twin Peaks podcast, it would be very different in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. But um, if you want a Twin Peaks podcast, the Idle Thumbs Twin Peaks rewatch podcast is still... Absolutely stellar. I yeah would listen to it right now without even watching the show again. Um, I really like that podcast. So I imagine if you're listening to this, you know about Idle Thumbs. If you don't, I was just doing an extensive um, Chris Remo impression and you didn't know who Chris Remo was. So um, sorry, but if you if you listen to us and you don't know about Important of True, pause this podcast, go listen to Important of True all of it and start tweeting like the rest of us about how your sad important if true will never come back um
2: i want to i want to say this because there are people who probably listen to this who don't know this um a lot of people in like games media now and like related orbits are aware of the icelandic yule lads and i'm fairly (laughs) certain it's because of the podcast important if true and i was the one who wrote in that email (laughs) And it yes. is still weird to me that I think it is one of the biggest... I mean, now I have more podcasts, maybe this will no longer be true. For a very long time, it was the largest impact that I had in the world of podcasting, because I know there are enemies in a season of Friends at the Table, based off of the Icelandic Yolads, where Austin Walker has specifically talked about hearing the Important of True episode and getting this idea, <laughs> which is bizarre <laughs> to me. Um, Icelandic labs are great, though, and if you only are going to listen to one Important of True episode, um, like... The hosts of that podcast also point to that episode as a great one, and I'm not going to take credit for why it's great. They really, really run with my email <laughs> where I just say, hey, there's these things called <laughs> Yule Lads in Iceland, and here, here's what they do, and they, like, do an entire episode based on it. Um, it's fucking incredible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I just remember that episode really well because, um, like... We knew each other when that episode came out, but I don't think we were talking as much. um, uh, Like, I think that was, like, during the weird gap in our friendship, maybe. I could be misremembering.
2: There, There was a part where... I mean, I think we became friends when I was at this law firm, but like the law firm just continued to demand more and more of my life to the point where I was working 12 hour work days, um, five days a week, and then sometimes working on weekends as well. And uh, I basically had no time in my life for literally fucking anything, um, and became really isolated from a lot of my friends, and it was extremely destructive to my life for a while, then I finally got out. and um, was able to become friends with people again, including you. <laughs> so,
0: I, I just vaguely recall, um, like, texting you, like, Oh, you're important. If true email was really funny. <laughs> and then just like, that was our conversation for the week. Yeah. <laughs> I could be misremembering, but, um, this is also at the height of them getting, um, genie emails. I think, I think there's a really good genie email in this episode. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of good genie emails. That's like a recurring thing. Um, <sighs>
0: I I I try for all of my podcasts to just be important if true, and none of them are as good. <laughs> but you know,
2: I am aware of this because you keep trying to end all the podcasts that we're on together with "Bye, thanks for stopping by." <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: should we should we, do we have anything else? Oh, we need to talk about what movie we're doing next time, and then do plugs. Um, we
0: stairwells. Oh yeah, uh, what movie do we're doing stairwells. next? and plugs yes uh this movie gets an f for stairwells
2: it's that but true
0: i i don't i i I just don't think there was a stairwell i I think maybe there is a stairwell leading up to the apartment but if you if there is you only see it the one time and it is not important yeah um Um, so yeah yeah
2: i'm
0: i'm sure that somewhere in one of his other movies there's a great stairwell. It's not in this one. He didn't submit an assignment this time.
2: It's a it's a good indicator of the quality of the stairwell in that spreadsheet is not in any way indicative of the quality of the movie. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact uh. that Rebels of the Neon God currently has the best quality stairwell of any of the movies we watched, and I mean Mulholland Drive and Rebels of the Neon God are very different movies. I feel like they're they're similar. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of like quality in our hearts.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They're so really fucking it, good movies.
2: <laughs> it, it is my pick next. Um, it is
0: your pick next.
2: So I, the, the one piece here is that like, you're going to come visit, which will be probably when we record next. Mm hmm. And we were hoping to go to the music box, which is (laughs) (laughs) the uh, art house theater that's like in walking distance from my apartment. Um, And as of this recording, (laughs) literally like a week and one day away, still for the entire time you're here, the only movie that they are showing just one screening a day is Stand By Me. We are not fucking going to see Stand by Me. So, no. Um,
0: one, I hate that movie. Two, um, our friends in the Normal Mapping Podcast literally just did a podcast about it. So, <laughs> yeah. I do. I don't even have the sort of thing. I'm like, oh, let's go see it. We can at least podcast about it. They did one like last month. I'm not gonna do another one. Fuck that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I will continue to monitor and like. We'll see if our plans change. If they do, I feel like they have to announce things. They're not going to open a theater just to show one movie a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they just have not announced stuff yet. So um, yeah, we, we like. Who knows? Maybe we'll see something and we'll talk about it as the episode, or maybe we will just talk about it before we talk about the main thing. Which so the thing that I, I've I've decided to bring here is that I have this. Um, Kind of project that I think I referred to last time, of like let's watch a bunch of fucking yakuza movies just because they're, it's my favorite genre. It's how I think a lot about a lot of movies, um, and I think it would be interesting for you to get like a little bit more of a here's like the history and how things get situated and how to think about this um, as well. Mm-hmm. And intentionally, I'm skipping a lot of really really early like Ninkyo ego, which is like the. Um, more traditional form of Yakuza movie um, because I think we can just watch Red Peony Gambler and get a sense of it, but have a little bit that's still going to be like, oh, here's something that we can play with and have fun with beyond just like, this is the formula done really, really well. But some of it is also like the formula is extremely... Uh, established at this point and red peony gambler is just doing the formula and literally the only place where it deviates is that the main character is a woman um and mm-hmm. specifically i want to do red peony gambler three hanafuda match just because i i think it's my favorite red peony gambler movie um it's just a really fun one i i think we'll we'll have fun watching this so um. Yeah. Red Peony Gambler Three Hanafuda Match. Uh. From nineteen sixty nine, directed by Kato Tai, and then probably some of the Yakuza movies that we watch after will actually be going backwards in time a little bit, but will be stuff that are is playing with the the formula that was established, but in other weirder ways. Um. So this is even like. The formula is persisting even as, like, some directors are messing with it. Uh, But I still think it's a really good film just to watch and be like, this is the formula. This is what Yakuza movies are. Um, This is what, like, Ninkyo Ega is. So, uh, yeah. Red Peony Gambler Flower Cards Match.
0: <laughs> That's what I was laughing at a second yeah. ago. I searched this movie out on Letterboxd and uh it's listed as Flower Cards Match, which is just very funny.
2: Yeah, which is just like them translating hanafuda as Flower Cards.
0: <laughs> also, apparently only 87 mo- people on Letterboxd have watched this movie. So
2: Yeah, it is I was able to find it. Uh people might be able to find it. I I don't think you'll be able to find it streaming um if you are able to, great. That's awesome. But um, yeah, there just may not be a legal way to get this movie to watch. Shrug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm. You host this podcast. I'm like, do we do? Oh the, like, right, stuff? I was <laughs>
0: typing it into the spreadsheet. Okay, leave me alone. Where could people find you? Fuck you.
2: I was going to like try and vamp, but the few times that I've been like where can people find you, you're like, No, I'm the one who hosts this. Despite the <laughs> fact that I'm I have announced myself as podcasting's Bratty Switch, so of course I'm going to try and take over the podcast every time that you're hosting. <laughs> Anyway, people can find me at FoxMomNia on Twitter or at GarfRedAloud. You can listen to my other podcasts that I've referenced a few times here, Ghost Divers. Uh, We're about to finish the series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I think when this comes out, uh, you know, that will also be out. Um, And we still have End of Ava to do. So, um, yeah, Connor and I are just going to fucking hate each other and... uh, we're, we ended the podcast after that because we got into such a fight over Eva.
0: Yeah, that's what happened.
2: Anyway, then you're. I'm not on any episodes
0: after that, so
2: yeah, yeah. We're not like doing Ray Earth currently, recording or anything.
0: Mm-hmm. That's not happening.
2: Where can people find you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at coffee. You can listen to my other podcast at Export Odd. .io, might I suggest Hot Singles? Um, I don't plug this one very often because I feel like it's my most popular podcast. But uh, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if the analytics bear out on that or if it's just that um, people talk about it in the Discord a lot. So I assume it's popular. Anyway. I feel like it has the most um,
2: devoted fan base, at least.
0: Yes. um, uh, We're taken a couple of weeks off because of scheduling stuff um but uh we just put up a big bonus like a big three-hour bonus episode that's barely about music like we take one music question i think um uh but m- for the most part that is a music podcast where regs and i and sometimes guests like nia um each pick an album um so like the next episode that we do about music uh we're gonna be listening to songs by adrian linker and the carter by little wayne and just discussing it like and i think it's a really good podcast i think regs and i have like very different taste and very different things that interest us and i think that we're able to like meet each other halfway in really good interesting ways and i i think it's just a really good podcast i think it's the best podcast i do um Sorry to everyone else. I just think that Hot Singles <laughs> comes out really well every time, and we're able to be critical and also have fun and you know everything you yeah. want. So
2: it's really fucking good. Um, unfortunately, I don't get to come on after my first appearance, so no one will ever hear me again. Um, do you have any plans Thank for the Christ. after the one that you've currently? You know, you just uh, have, <laughs> you just talked about the next musical one. Do you have any plans for the one after that, or?
0: Um, uh, I mean, I'm like probably going to bring food. the new Tyler album that dropped while we were recording this podcast uh, on the next episode after that one. Um, I had a guest in mind, but no, uh, I don't know. She's kind of an asshole, so I'm just probably not going to let her <laughs> on. <laughs>
2: Okagoro oh, is real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stopping recording. <laughs>